All right, we're back in uh, 1 Corinthians tonight, chapter 11. Last time we were uh, in Corinthians in chapter 10, we were learning about the past and hopefully allowing that to teach us something that we could use to maybe change the way we act in the future. Tonight, uh, in chapter 11, uh, we're kind of back to the problems of the church, if you will. They've had lots and lots of problems, as we know, and tonight, Paul is using the topic of head coverings and the disruption that it's caused in service. Now, I have to admit that this is one of the types of passages that you can come to when you're studying God's Word and you're just wondering, why in the world does this matter to me? Real easy to skip over, maybe, and not spend a whole lot of time thinking about, uh, but Tonight, I just want us to take some time and maybe see how this could be relevant to our lives today, okay? So we're going to start reading in verse 1, chapter 11. And actually, I'm going to start in verse 2 because verse 1 is an interesting verse. You know, we've talked about this before. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Most people believe, and your Bible may show it as it's part of really chapter 10. It's a great verse. It's one of those kind of verses that just reminds you of how you should live your life. We're going to start in verse 2. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Here comes the but. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair off, or she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You loving this so far? This is very applicable, right? Yeah, yeah. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For, a, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. See, we got that one in there for the women. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her, her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Does this make sense to you now? Do you know now why it's applicable? Sometimes I ask myself, and I actually think it's a pretty good uh, 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 devotional practice to say, why did God include this in the Bible? Right? I mean, everything's here for a reason. God made no mistakes in this Bible, so there's a reason for this to be here. And it's kind of sometimes a good thing to ask yourself, you know, when you're studying. So why did God put this in the Bible? Well, 
maybe in thinking about it, let's kind of first maybe put this time in context. Okay, remember, this is a church that has really gone wild. This is a church going wild, a little like the television show going wild, all right? The girls going wild one, that's a little bit of what's going on here in Corinth. Never seen that show, right? I've just, I've seen it advertised, okay? They've gone wild, sexual immorality and rampant sin and division. I mean, let's read some more. They're even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, okay? Look in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. First of all, how sad is that verse? You see what he's saying there? He says that basically the the reason I know there's good people is because there's so many bad. Wouldn't it be awesome if he couldn't tell because everybody was good? That'd be really good, wouldn't it? It's kind of a great, it's kind of an interesting verse. There in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, listen, even my Christian drinkers must think there's something wrong with this, right? Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. This church is out of control. Do you think that there is any part of this that we can relate to today? Today's church? I mean, do we see this behavior in today's church? We do, don't we? I mean, Andy Brown, you know Andy. He's been here a few times. I mean, some of my Outcry guys haven't met Andy. He's a church planner, part of the church planning network at Prestonwood in Seattle. And uh, Andy is, I talked to Andy quite regularly. He was telling me about a church in Seattle that the way they want to grow and attract people is they throw keg parties and, and open bars and, and, and have wine parties. Now, honestly, it probably works, sadly enough. That's how they're recruiting people. And I've been on my drinking kick, Aaron knows, for a long time. I'm about to lose my mind uh, watching social media, I have to admit. So I started on this social media to try to uh, watch what Spencer was doing, and he's by far the most adult person that I've seen on social media. <clears throat> so I don't think I had to worry much about Spencer. Okay, but I started slowly adding people to my social media, my Twitter account, and I think now I'm, I'm back down to about 18, we saw, I think 15 are dead, okay, so they don't count, right, like most of the people I get quotes from, but I've got a few that are alive, you know, Stuart keeps me on my toes, okay, but I've, I've unfollowed or de-Twitterized or whatever, like just about everybody I know, because I'm so tired of seeing pastors drinking, I just can't get my head around it, to be honest with you. I mean, I just don't understand. I mean, if you make a decision, we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 8. If you make a decision to drink, that's, that's your decision between you and God. But if you're a pastor and you're drinking and you're putting that on social media, my goodness, think about the damaging effects that you could have. I mean, think about that. It just drives me insane. I just cannot get my head around it. You know, I was, uh, thank goodness for Jerry. He bought this book. I was looking for it today. I couldn't find it that Pastor Graham wrote. And I tell this to people all the time because I talk about this. I counsel guys a lot on drinking because I was a professional drinker. Okay, I drank for 30 years. I promise you I know how to drink. If I could find a good loophole that I could live with that Jesus would, that I believe Jesus would agree with, I'd go to drinking, Okay. All right, that desire did not go away, but I know that it's not good for me, and I know it's not a great witness of Christ, okay? But I don't even have to go there with a lot of guys, and this is nothing that I had necessarily planned, but I remember this so much. 
that Pastor Graham said, I teach total abstinence because I've seen the horror show that alcohol makes of a person's testimony, of his legacy, of his life. It says 82%, this is an amazing statistic, 82% of teens will drink if their parents drink. If you're a parent, that's, that right there should be a reason you should never take a drink. 82%, but 72% will say no if their parents abstain. How about that? I think I know where Apostle Paul would come out on this issue. I mean, we saw it in 8, right? In chapter 8, Romans 9, he basically says, listen, I'm willing to go to hell if it'll help you get to heaven. So we know that he would be against this. But listen, it's not just drinking in the church, right, today. If we want to kind of think about the church today in context of the church at Corinth, there's lots of other things. Aaron was showing me this article not too long ago where there was one church outside of another church protesting because the one church believed that homosexuality was a sin. I mean, think about this. We've got a church protesting outside of another church over LGBT issues. It's a mess, right? We've got a lot of, a lot of, a lot of problems today, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what was happening back in the church of Corinth. So I do think we can relate to this time. I do think we've got problems. They may not always be the same problems, but listen, the church is large. We have issues. And here, okay, Paul is just using one of those issues. Another one, we've talked about a lot of things, really mainly a lot of things dealing with culture, right? Another tonight, these head coverings. Head coverings is just a means by which to really discuss some of the problems. Very customary though, right, in the Middle East. Head covering still is today, all right? I'm very familiar with that. I brought some pictures that I'm gonna have Spencer put up here just to, sorry, mainly to get to one picture. Do you got those for me, Spencer? I thought I'd bring some things. So this is going to mean nothing to you, but I have a company in the Middle East that's based in Bahrain, and we clean up that stuff. So all of this right here is, um, this is oil that came down from the first Gulf War. Okay, it was when they remember when Saddam Hussein turned on all the oil and it went all the way down the beaches. So that's what we do, is we clean that up. Okay, that's just more of it. See all that oil in there? Isn't that gross? Keep going, Spencer. More of it. Now this is my hotel that I stay at in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Keep going. Huh? All right, now Spencer's like, why are you showing them this shower? Well, because it's a great story, all right? So that shower right there, it's got a sliding glass door. The very first time I got to Saudi Arabia, I've been in the room for 15 minutes. I'm going to take a shower, okay? I slam that door and the stopper's not on it. All right, it shatters. It blows up on me. I've got glass. I'm bleeding. I can't get out of the shower. I'm crawling across the floor. There's. It literally looks like somebody. It was like a murder scene. Is what it is. So I I crawl across the floor. I get to the phone. I'm like calling the operator in the front desk. Send somebody up there. And about this time, another friend of mine walks in. They take me to the hospital because I've got gouges all over me from crawling on this glass. So I'm laying down, and this Egyptian doctor who does not speak English is about to cut me open. So this is my first day in Saudi Arabia, just in that bathroom. So it was kind of scary. I got to watch Dirk on TV, though, in Saudi. Look how tiny they are. I got to Skype. <clears throat> that is the, the Red Sea. How cool is that? Another one? 
These are my partners in the Middle East, business partners. Uh, yeah, I put this on there. This is the this is the Emirates plane. Everybody's talked about the Emirates plane. I got to fly on the Emirates plane over to Dubai. There's Dubai. <coughs> One of my friends here in Dallas owns a bunch of restaurants. He owns El Chico and he owns uh, Silver Fox and Three Forks. So he set me up everywhere I went where he had a restaurant to introduce me to the people there. So this is El Chico in Dubai. <coughs> this is the ski indoor skiing in Dubai. There's a beach in Dubai. Silver Fox, the restaurant in Dubai. That's my friend Lowy in the middle. Born and raised. And that is when I came home. Look how small they are. <laughs> Spencer is like twice that big. Isn't that awesome? So why in the world am I showing you all this? Well, because I called uh, Lowy, the guy you saw toward the end there, and I wanted to ask him a, some questions about my message tonight. So the first one I asked him was, is really the main thing I want to talk about was tell me about head coverings. Still very common over there. And I said, why, you know, why do you still do this? Tell me, give me some thoughts on it. And he kind of helped write my lesson tonight, okay? So thank Lowy for that. He said the first thing was about it, he said is that it's about custom and traditions, it's about custom and traditions. And Paul makes that point here, doesn't he? He talks a lot about that. He says that, that in everything and maintain the traditions, that's there in verse 2. Uh, he talks about what is proper there in verse 13. He talks about uh, does nature itself teach you this? Is it natural? Is it something natural? Okay, and then he talks about down at the end in 16, he says we have no such practice is this something that we do in practice? And I started thinking to myself, okay, so why does this matter? <clears throat> why is Paul making such a big deal out of what's customary and, you know, what's practiced in, uh, amongst other churches and what's a tradition? Because you can have some pretty bad traditions, right? They're not all good. Culture can kind of go opposite, right? So I, start, I started asking myself, you know, what is it that we learn from this? How do we judge this in our own lives you know, how do we look at culture and tradition and things like those? I mean, what do you, how do you think that, how does that impact you? What should be our, our guardrails, though, when it comes to that? I mean, you know, because we shouldn't just take everything and say, well, tradition says do this or culture says do that, right? That's not, that's not what we're trying to do. What do we have to do with all of that and everything in life? You got to judge it by this, right? You got to align it with God's word. So Paul's not saying, you know, and, it, and it, you could have a lot of people run off on a bad path here. Because you can start a lot of traditions like, like keg parties in church. <clears throat> All right, but that doesn't mean it's, it's right. All right, so that's not, that's not what Paul is really talking about here, okay? He's not really talking about that because whatever tradition and custom we have, whatever the culture is telling us, it has to be filtered through this. And there's a lot of things that aren't really covered here though, Right? Okay, so we do get impacted by, you know, things outside of this. But it doesn't mean, though, that this shouldn't guide us, right? You know, if you go and read the chapter 8 that we went over or, or Romans 14 and 15, you'll hear a lot of things that re revolve around matters of conscience is what they call it. It's a, it's a matter of conscience. And basically it's, you know, would you call somebody to stumble? Okay, I, I read a, a, a preacher the other day that called it a dotted line. It's not, it's not a solid line sin, is a dotted line. But it may be just as bad as a solid line because it may make somebody stumble. So you got to take all that into consideration. 
you know, when you're thinking about traditions and customs and culture and all these different things. But then I asked Loie, I said, well, what else? Loie, tell me, it can't be all there is to it. So he said, Scott, it's about authority and order. It's about authority and it's about order. And I was like, yes, because that's what I believe this is about. I believe this whole chapter really is about authority and order. It's like Paul is screaming again. He's saying, order, order, order in the court or order in the church. We need to bring order back to the church. It's really what he's saying. In fact, if you were looking at the New Living Translation, which I try to read to help me understand things when I can't figure it out. It's much easier to understand sometimes. If you look at the second heading there at Lord's Supper, it says, order at the Lord's Supper. It's about order. This entire chapter is about order, and order generally includes authority, doesn't it? I mean, there's always a hierarchy, really, in there. The judge in a courtroom. There would be no order in that court if he didn't have authority, right? There's authority that comes with, with these positions. A quarterback on a football team. If he didn't have authority, there'd be chaos out there. Commander. Yeah, the Cowboys, perfect example. They finally got some order this year. The commander in a battle. He's got authority, right? That's what this discussion is all about, really. It's about authority. It's about order. Look at verse 3. He's setting this authority in motion, really. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. It's about authority. And even Christ was subject to authority. Even Christ. John 6, 38, it says, For I've come not to do my own will, but what? The will of the Father. John 14, 28, Jesus said, For the Father is greater than I. Even Jesus was under authority of God the Father. But, you know, what happens is, when we're reading chapters like this, and we see that verse, okay, instead of thinking about authority and order and things like that, we get tripped up, don't we? By all kinds of things. We, we, we read some of them like, like woman is the glory of man. That could just get your mind going a whole different direction. But really what that means is, is it's one who shows the excellence of. It's what he's saying there is, is woman is everything good about man. Everything good about man. Also things like the head of a wife is her husband. That can drive you, know, you crazy if you're a woman. Although it may be biblically true, it's still sometimes frustrating. But look what else he says, though. In verse 11, he says, neither are, are independent. Both are from God. He even points out that man comes from woman. There's no more authority that you can have over somebody than the umbilical cord. Okay? In the sanctity of life weekend, it seems right that we're talking about the power of a woman as it relates to child rearing. Wasn't for a woman, there wouldn't be a man. That's what he tells us again right here, okay? So it's really, it's not about, you know, man versus woman. This, and even though it's, those are kind of the ones that stand out when you're reading this, he's got instruction here too for the man, right? Okay? He's saying don't cover your head, all right? And you got to again remember the context here. For a woman in the Middle East still today and back then, if they went out, especially a, a, a married woman and, and did not have their face covered, okay, it's, it's a sign of sexual availability, so basically what Paul is saying here is, listen, what we got is a bunch of married women looking for a date in the church. Not good, right? 
We would all agree that's pretty bad. And for the men, the reason he's saying don't cover your face is because if you covered it up, then back in those days, it was, it was, you were praying to, to pagan gods. So again, he's saying, listen, don't cause your brother to stumble. What are you doing? This is not right. It's a matter of conscience. All right? But this is not really about you know, a man-woman issue. It's not about an equality issue. Sometimes we want to make these passages about equality. It has nothing to do with equality. I got the privilege to, to marry Kelly and Shaw, and one of the things that I said in there is this. I draw, the, I draw the comparison to the Trinity, okay? Each with a separate and distinct part of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clear authority within the Trinity, but equal, it's not an equality issue that we're talking about here, okay? It's not even necessarily an authority issue in, in, in all aspects of life, right? I mean, there are lots of women that I am okay sitting under their authority, depending on the context. My wife just was out teaching today. I'm, I would happily sit under her teaching. She's a great Bible teacher, okay? That's, that's not even what we're really talking about. Military is a great example. There's a lot of women that are in positions of authority. Okay, that's really not what we're talking about either here. What we're talking about, though, is, is biblical lines of authority that God has set for the church and the home. And like it or not, God has said that for there to be order, there needs to be a line of authority that runs from God to Christ to man to the wife. Okay, that's what this is about. Like the Trinity, equal with separate authority. But but listen, biblical authority today is not the only thing we struggle with, right? As a country, we definitely are struggling with authority, aren't we? Maybe more than we've ever in the history of our country. You know, I was reading some commentaries, and it's, it's funny to me. This commentary was written, you know, many years ago, but I, I read David Guzik's commentary a lot. And he had some thoughts that I just put down I wanted to read to you on this issue of authority. He says, since the 1960s, there has been a massive change in the way we see and accept authority. Citizens do not have the same respect for government's authority. Students do not have the same respect for teachers' authority. Women do not have the same respect for men's authority. Children do not have the same respect for parents' authority. Employees do not have the same respect for their employer's authority. People do not have the same respect for police authority. And Christians no longer have the same respect for church authority. It is fair to describe our present moral state as one of anarchy. There is no moral authority in our culture. When it comes to morality, the only thing that matters is what one wants to do. We must see the broader attack on authority as a direct satanic strategy to destroy our society and the millions of individual lives. The devil is accomplishing this with two main attacks. First, the corruption of authority. No greater example than that than the man. I mean, men have just failed their families in such massive ways. The corruption of authority. And second, the rejection of authority. I, I never thought of it as a satanic attack, but boy, you can see the impact of it. No greater weapon if you're Satan than the attack, the authority and order of our family and our country, our church, right? We've just lost this. As a society, we've just lost this. You know, over um, Christmas, uh, Grace and Aaron, she, Aaron, I think told you this, they were watching this show, when the, when, when the Heart Calls, when it calls the heart. See, I haven't watched it, but I caught glimpses of it. 
all right? It was set in the early 1900s, and it was just so great to watch that because it was just a different time, wasn't it? And it was so nice to kind of be taken back to that, you know, and it reminded me over uh, uh, Christmas time, as, as many of you know, my grandmother by marriage passed away, and, you know, she was a great woman, and her son, my stepdad, uh, wrote this uh, about her for the funeral that they read. And as I was thinking about this and just, you know, the, just the times of old, uh, I, I just wanted to read some of the things that were in here. She, she was married, obviously, uh, at a young age. And when she got married, um, her husband that she married had a son already because his wife had died. Uh, and he had a young boy, so his name was Ford. Uh, and it says in here that, that when... When Steve, they call, his name was Stephen Ford, when Steve died in 1987, it left a scar in her soul that never completely healed. However, she carried the extraordinary burden of losing a child for the rest of her life with grace and dignity. Over the years, Ruth gave her four sons a loving home that was an ever-present safe harbor from the world. She gave them structure and a principled example of a true Christian life. She gave them opportunity and encouragement and wise counsel that will serve her family for generations to come. It says, while Bill was the necessary disciplinarian in the home with four boys, it was mother who added balance with love and consoling. Ruth Boyette was a member of a generation of women forged in the midst of the Great Depression. These women were strong, quiet, and humble. They did not draw attention to themselves with drama or entitlement, and they saw the opportunity to provide for others as a gift. Ruth was the embodiment of this type of woman. Strong, humble, and generous. A true giver. She says her favorite hobby was shopping. She had the QVC on speed dial. <laughs> says the day before she died, she was shopping for Christmas gifts. And on the morning of her death, beside her bed was a beautifully wrapped gift purchased the day before for one of her friends at the assisted living home. I used to joke with her and say that if she lived a good life and was faithful to God on earth, she would be rewarded to spend eternity in that big shopping mall in the sky. Looking back, the truth is the shopping was her, never really her true passion. It was given, giving. She was strong, humble, generous. You know, we need more of this, don't you think? I mean, I read that and it just makes my heart break for what I see today. She knew authority for sure. She knew order. But even that's not in and of itself enough, is it? It's not just about authority, and it's not just about order, okay, even though she knew both. Because in the Middle East, as I was talking about culturally, they know order and authority. They've got their own order and authority, don't they? But there's even more to it than that, though. What's really also important is what's the object of your order, okay? What's at the center of your order? Because there has to be something that is the object of it, okay? Because Authority, custom, tradition, tradition none of it really matters, all right, if Christ isn't the object of your authority. None of it matters if Christ isn't the object of your authority. I was looking up just trying to see what the definition of object was. It says something mental or physical toward which thought, feeling, or action is directed. Something mental or physical toward which thought, feeling, or action is directed. Well, if your thoughts, feelings, and actions are not directed to Christ, if that's not the object of your order, there's going to be chaos. There's going to be chaos. Just look at Islam. 
what's been birthed out of Islam, ISIS, complete chaos in parts of, of the Islam world. Lots of order and authority, but total chaos. Here in the U.S., I watched the inauguration. Then I saw what saddened my heart and violence all over the country. Trouble with authority. Trouble with authority. And listen, I know it's hard. It really is because there's a lot of people out there that are scared, that feel threatened. They do. But if you're a believer, you shouldn't let that bother you. The Bible says that God is the one that appoints and removes kings, right? It's not, it's not the man there. But let me tell you what encouraged me greatly as a believer, regardless of who's in that office, okay, is what I saw that day at the inauguration was the name of Jesus proclaimed. The name of Jesus was proclaimed. And if you're a believer, regardless of who's president, okay, if the object of our government, the focus is Christ, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it through because God is in control. It's the same for our lives, too, if you think about it, you know. What's the object of, of, of your order? Is it Christ? Because if it's not, there's going to be chaos. We know that, don't we? In your life, in, in your job, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your plans for life, your, your ambitions, all of it. There'll be lots and lots of chaos if the object of your order is not Christ. Authority doesn't matter. All these other things doesn't matter if Christ is not in the center. If it's not about Christ. I think that's why Paul brings this back to the Lord's Supper. He makes it focus about Christ. He wants to bring the attention back on Christ. And, and he does here in, in the last part of this. He takes us through the Lord's Supper. He could have just talked about it. He didn't have to really go through it in, in detail and get them focused back on Christ. Because I think he knew the same thing. He's like, listen, all, whatever's going on, all this craziness in the church, all right, we've got to focus back on what really matters, on Christ. That's all that really matters, right? So can you see what we learn from this? I mean, we are learning some things, right? When you start, you're thinking, man, what is this about? I mean, we've learned that custom and tradition matters, okay? But it must be aligned with God's word, right? We've, we've learned that authority for sure matters. And order is commanded by God, all right? But none of it matters if the object of our order is not Christ. Christ brings order to your chaos. That's what he does. He brings order to chaos. But then there's one other thing. There's one other thing. And he talks about it here in verses 27 and 28. If you look there real quick for me, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. Examine himself. So, so when you are, whether you're living out in life or you're, or you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, okay? Don't forget this, because what he's talking about there, he's talking about humility and repentance. That's what he's talking about, okay? He says an unworthy manner. We, we know we can't be worthy, right? We know there's nothing that we can do. It says, the Bible says our righteous acts, best we've got, the best we've got are like what? Filthy rags. Okay, so we know we can't be good enough. This is not about us being worthy. It's about us being worthy about because of what Christ did, right? That's what makes us worthy, all right? So what this is, he says, examine yourself. He's saying, listen, be about repentance and be about humility, okay? Be about humility when you come, okay, before the Lord. 
Come up with an open heart, okay? It's about your posture. Is it one on your knees or is it bowed up with pride? That's what he's talking about. Come to me with a repentant heart. I'm not worthy except for Christ. That's what this is all about. That's what we got to remember because if we want to do this, because we can sit here, right? My, the practical side of this is we can sit here and say, hey, we're going to make Christ the object of our order. We're going to respect authority. And we're going to make sure we honor tradition when it's biblical, okay? But if you're not walking out that life with humility and a repentant heart where you're focused and, and with, with your hands open as we were praying tonight, okay, it's not going to matter. And that's what he's talking about here. Humility and repentance. So tonight, I'm going to do something a little different as we close. Spencer, can you come up here and play for me? So listen, I was going to, um, I was actually going to do a, have, a, have us participate together in the Lord's Supper. All right? I was going to do that. All right? But sometimes I do stuff that I know are going to make people mad, <laughs> and I'm okay with it. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't. Okay, but listen, just because we're not actually partaking of the Lord's Supper physically doesn't mean we can't spiritually and emotionally, right? We can still get our hearts right with God. So what I want us to do, I want us to have a time of prayer before we leave, okay? I want everybody's head bowed across the room. Spencer's going to play. I just want us to take some time to maybe examine ourselves, like Paul says. You're talking about the Lord's Supper and participating in the Lord's Supper. The Bible's very clear that it's to be done as a church. Well, this room is for sure a church. This is about as New Testament church as you can get. But also, it says, if you're going to come participate in the Lord's Supper you should examine yourself because we believe that to participate in the Lord's Supper you need to be a believer it's a very significant thing you're identifying with Christ so as our heads are bowed and we're spending time with God examining your own life thinking about the chaos maybe in your life Mistakes you've made. Maybe open up those hands and say, God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry. Sorry where I've let you down. Forgive me, God. You know, there may be some in here that that don't, know Christ as your personal Savior. They don't have that personal relationship with Christ. The Bible says that God loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. See, God had this great plan and it was for fellowship and relationship with man. But sin came into the world, separated us forever. Broke that relationship that we have. But all that changed 
because God loved us enough to send His Son. See, for years and years and years and years in the Old Testament, they had to offer a sacrifice of a lamb. Why? Because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But that wasn't enough, right? We had to do it over and over again, year after year after year. They had to do the same sacrifice until the ultimate perfect sacrifice came in the person of Jesus Christ. To die on a cross, take our place, die the death that we should have died. But it wasn't over on that cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And the Bible tells us that if we believe that, if we believe that, then we can be saved. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I don't know if there's anybody in here that doesn't know Jesus that right now in this moment wants to. Listen, everybody with their heads bowed, their eyes closed. If that's you and you don't know him, just raise your hand. I mean, it's my prayer that I don't see a single hand. It's my prayer that everybody knows. Just you and God. You know, and there's also, I'm sure, some in here that would like to just say, hey, you know what, right now I want to rededicate my life to God. I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian, but you know what? Man, I haven't been living the right way. I made a lot of mistakes. And right now, I want to, I want to rededicate my life. So just to yourself, we can all, you can all say this. You can always say a prayer, just something like this. You can just say it to yourself. God, I'm tired of living in brokenness. I'm sorry for my sins. I believe in you. I confess you as my Lord. I believe that you were raised from the dead to conquer death, hell, and the grave. Come into my heart. Save me. Renew me. Make me whole. See, on that night of the Lord's Supper, that these familiar verses from this passage, when Jesus was sitting with his disciples, and he said, he took the bread and says in the Bible, giving thanks. He broke it, gave it to them. He says, this is my body broken for you. Symbol. Christ, our substitute for us. We, we can overcome sin, the power of sin, because of what Christ did on that cross. And then after that, it says that he took juice in the cup and he says this is the cup of the New Testament 
and it is my blood. Every time you do this, remember me. Oh, that blood is significant. That blood is the message of the cross. Forgiveness of our sins forever. That one perfect sacrifice for you and me. So that we no longer have to live with, with regret, with guilt, with the burdens of sin. In one moment, Christ took it away forever. So Father, thank you so much for this sweet, precious time of prayer. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you sacrificed your own son. Father, I just pray, Lord, that for each of us, Lord, we'll always, always, always make Christ the priority of our life. But let him always be the object of our order. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.